Well, good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. So I recently heard a cool story about a golf game. It was between Moses and Jesus. So Moses steps up and he tees off and he hits the ball long, hard, and straight. And it's going right towards the hole, but there's a water hazard before you get to the green. And as just as it's getting ready to just go over the water hazard, it drops and falls into the water. And so Moses stands there, he lifts his golf club, the waters part, the ball rolls right onto the green. Pretty amazing. Jesus stands up, he tees off, he hits it long, hard, and straight. It's looking even better than Moses's. And just as it gets to the edge of that water hazard, it almost touches the water, and then it stops. And it hovers over top of the water, and then it glides over the water straight onto the green. Well, then a third person gets up, and they tee off. And it's like they're not even trying. They're not even paying attention where it goes. It's slicing all over the place. It's bending with the wind. It's a terrible tee shot. It it ends up hitting the side of a building, bouncing off of that onto a, a telephone pole. It hits a couple of trees, and then it drops to the ground. Well, then a chipmunk runs over, picks up the ball, and runs with it. As the chipmunk is running across the fairway, a hawk comes, dips down, grabs a chipmunk who's still holding the ball and carries it. And as it's going over the green, all of a sudden the hawk loses control of the chipmunk, which loses control of the ball. The ball falls all the way to the green, bounces straight into the hole, hole in one. Moses leans over to Jesus and he said, ah, I hate playing with your dad. So let's open up our Bibles to Deuteronomy 9, 1 through 6 to get us started. This is part of Moses' final instructions to the Israelites before he dies. Read this with me. Listen, O Israel, today you are about to cross the Jordan to take over the land belonging to nations much greater and more powerful than you. They live in cities with walls that reach to the sky. They are strong and tall. Uh, Who could stand up to these Anakites, you've heard people say. But recognize today that the Lord your God is the one who will cross over ahead of you like a devouring fire to destroy them. He will subdue them so that you will quickly conquer them and drive them out just as the Lord has promised. After the Lord your God has done this for you, don't say in your hearts, the Lord's given us this land because we are such good people. No, it is because of the wickedness of the other nations that he is pushing them out of your way. It's not because you are so good or have such integrity that you're about to occupy the land. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. We're in a series called Hard Questions and Good Answers. And the question of why does the Old Testament God seem to be so different from Jesus is, I think, one of the hardest questions that many, many people have about the Bible. And that's what we're going to dig into this morning. But first, let's just pray and invite the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to come, uh, illuminate your word, speak to our hearts, Jesus. Let us see your character uh, clearly. Let us be aware of your plan more clearly. Uh, We just ask for you to come 
and reveal your heart to us. The same heart that was there at creation, that was there on the cross, that is here with us today. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I pray that this morning we will walk away with more confidence in who it is that you are and that we can stand firm on your unchangeable nature. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about Abraham and Israel. Uh, Moses references this in the section that we just talked about. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham enters the scene. And we're told about Abraham growing up in a place called Ur, surrounded by his family. Uh, You would assume that they were at least moderately well-to-do because of how well-to-do he is uh, for the rest of his life and what he left home with. Uh, So, God speaks to Abraham and he asks him to leave his home, to leave everything he's known, to take his wife and, and some, uh, some of his stuff, and then to go where it is that God's calling him to go. And Abraham says, yes, and he does it. And so they leave everything. They leave the comfort, the relative wealth, uh, their, their extended family, and they go to a land, and they end up going to a land that is known as Canaan. And when they are in the land of Canaan, God speaks again to Abraham, and he said, because you trusted me, because you knew that I was faithful and that I was good, and you were willing to risk everything for me, everything that you see in front of you, all of the land in front of you, I'm going to give to your disciples and I'm going to bless them, and they are going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. What an amazing blessing that God gave to Abraham, right? Well, hundreds of years pass, and and Abraham's family has grown, and now they're called Israel, but they're also slaves in Egypt to the Egyptians. And so a man named Moses is called by God to go and to free the Israelites. And so he goes and he brings freedom. He leads them out of uh, Egypt in through uh, this journey through the desert to the land of Canaan once again, to the promised land that was given to Abraham all those years ago for this now huge group of people that are known as the Israelites, his descendants. And so in Moses, uh, God speaks to Moses in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. If you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure, my kingdom priest, my holy nation. So the descendants of Abraham were, they were promised the land of Canaan through a promise uh, given to Abraham hundreds of years before because he chose to follow God. They were called to be a blessing to all people throughout the world. And they were called to be God's priests, which means that they were called to be the ones who revealed what it looked like to follow God, to worship God and God alone. So this promise to Abraham is what the invasion of the Canaanites is based upon that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 9. It was a covenant between God to the people of Israel to worship God and to worship God alone, to love God at all times because they were loved by God at all times. But as God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 through Moses, it is not because the Israelites are perfect. Christopher Wright is an Old Testament theologian, and he said that the equation isn't that Israel's victory equals Israel's righteousness plus the enemy's weakness. 
It's not Israel's righteousness that is that extra piece. Moses disallows the validity of this equation, Wright says. The corrected equation is Israel's victory equals God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob plus the enemy's wickedness. So what what he's getting at here is that the Canaanite invasion, the promise of the land, the Israelites being led first by Moses, then by Joshua into the land of Canaan, which takes up a big chunk of uh, the Old Testament. Uh, this whole thing is as much about destroying the evil and idolatrous practices of the Canaanites as it is anything. Not destroying the Canaanites, but destroying their wickedness that has been continuous over long periods of time. You see, God wanted to bring freedom to the Canaanite from their worship of idols and the practices that went along with that. But it reached a point where they, where God could no longer just allow them to keep continuing on in what he saw happening. And at this point, you should be asking, like, what's bad enough that God says that you need to go into that land and destroy every living thing, right? What is it that's this bad? Well, they worshiped idols and gods other than Yahweh, who is the, the Israel, the God of Israel. And the worship of these gods often included uh, things along the line of child sacrifices, uh, of temple sexual practices like slavery, uh, that included slavery and prostitution. Uh, Leviticus 18 uh, details out this long list of sexual practices which God says are not good. Uh, if you can look at it if you want on your own. Uh, it is long. Uh, it includes things that you're like, really? We have to clarify that this is not good. But here's, here's the thing we have to remember. If Moses is clarifying for the people of Israel that these things are not good, why would he do that? Here's the only reason. Because they were getting ready to go into a place where these practices were commonplace. They were getting ready to live in an area surrounded by people who were doing this. Also, Deuteronomy 13 lays out, amongst many other uh, sections in uh, the first five books of the Old Testament especially, it, it lays out this list of idolatrous worship practices that God hates. Things like sac human sacrifices and sorcery and witchcraft and so on. These were common among the tribes of Canaan. And it had been that way for hundreds of years hundreds of years, going back to the time of Abraham. So, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe you've heard of this one. Uh, it was during Abraham's time. Uh, his nephew Lot actually lived in Sodom, which we're going to talk about in a second. But in that story, two guests come to the town of, of Sodom, which ended up being uh, a representative sent by God, angels, uh, is another term to use for them. And they go there to see if the wickedness is really as bad as what God had heard. They go in, Lot greets them, and immediately runs them into his house. And he says that he's taking them to his house. Why? So that the, the men of the town won't abuse them. And then what happens? All of the men of the town come and bang on his door and demand that he send out these men so that they can have their way with them. Uh, in a way that didn't matter what these men wanted. Uh, it just mattered what the other men wanted. And this was 700 years or so before the time when Joshua leads 
the, the Israelites into Canaan after the death of Moses. Does that mean that everyone was like this? No, of course not. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the reality. But it does mean that this has become normalized in their culture. And there are many verses in the Bible that show that God had been patient and, and waited for the Canaanites to change. And eventually it had reached a point where their wickedness, where their acts of abuse and injustice demanded that God, who is just, who is holy, begin to act on behalf of those who have been violated, of those who have been wronged in this area. Because friends, if God is truly just and committed to justice for the oppressed and the abused, then sometimes action is demanded. But it usually only happens after a long period of God trying over and over and over again to soften the hard hearts of the people uh, that are committing these acts. You see, the patience and mercy of God towards the Canaanites is shown in this story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because before this happens, God is having a conversation with Abraham, whose nephew Lot, as I said, lives in Sodom. And he tells Abraham what he's getting ready to do. And he says that he's heard this outcry of the wickedness uh, and their sin. And so he's going to go down to see if it's true. And Abraham says, wait, but will you destroy everyone if there are 50 righteous people. And God says, no, for 50, I won't. How about if there are 40? No. 30? No. How about if there are only 10 righteous people in the entire town? Will you still destroy everyone? No, for the sake of those 10, I won't. And then Abraham walks away from the conversation, confident that God is good and that it, he's merciful. However, as we know, there weren't 10. And that's what led to God's action. You know, most of what I've laid out with when it comes to the, the invasion of uh, God's, God's actions, uh, we're, we're pretty okay with. Because God made a promise to Abraham, and then he followed through on that promise to his descendants. He's trustworthy. God hates idolatry and wickedness and continued oppression and abuse. It, it breaks God's heart. And so God acts because he's holy and because he's just. And we want God to be trustworthy, and we want him to be holy, and we want him to be just. We are good with these things. But what we aren't okay with is God telling people to destroy every living Thing. We read this and we feel like we get slapped in the face and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What happened to Jesus? What happened to Jesus' call to love your enemies, uh, to, to, to turn the other cheek? What happened to all of that, uh, to the love, to the mercy, to the grace that we see in the New Testament? Is the Old Testament God really that different from Jesus? Brian Zond wrote this great book called Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God. And he said that even the casual reader of the Bible notices that between the alleged divine endorsement of genocide and the conquest of Canaan and Jesus's call for love of enemies in his Sermon on the Mount, something has clearly changed. It's obvious. We can figure this out. But we as Christians believe that God does not change. 
We, we believe in this thing called the, the, that God is immutable, which doesn't mean that he, you, can mute, you can't mute him. It, it means that he doesn't mutate. Uh, he doesn't change over time. He is now what he was then, and, and he will be what he has been. Uh, God is unchanging. We change, but he does not. So what changed in the time between when God led the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites, when he commanded for them to do it in Deuteronomy 9 and other passages, and Jesus telling us to love our enemies? What changed? Well, if God didn't change, then our understanding of who God is must have grown and flourished and matured over that time. And I want to look at this in two steps. And I want us to do two things here. I want us to read the Bible well, which takes a little bit of intentionality and looking at at it from a a few different angles. And then I also want us to see that God's plan never changed because I believe that that is the truth. And if we can grasp a hold of this, if we can see that God's character is the same, that his plan has always been the same, then we can gain confidence in who God is. And we can gain confidence in who Jesus has revealed God to be. So to the first point, let's read this well. So Deuteronomy 20 verse 10 says, As you approach a town to attack it, you must first offer peace, uh, offer its people terms for peace. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, God specifically named towns that they were not allowed, towns and tribes that they were not allowed to attack. So God tells them how to offer peace before they attack every single time and what to do if the peace was rejected. There were terms for peace that God gave to the Canaanites and the terms for peace did include, as you would expect, turning from their wickedness, from their idolatrous practices and following God and God alone. Now, Joshua eleven nineteen sadly tells us that no one in the region made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites of Gilead. All others were defeated. So only one tribe took them up on this offer of peace, which is sad. That's heartbreaking for the other tribes. But it should also be encouraging to us. Because if one took them up on it, then that means that they were all truly offered peace. And that matters. Peace was an option. In Deuteronomy 9.1, they are told to drive out the inhabitants. Now, this word drive out actually means to dispossess, not to destroy. And that matters. It doesn't necessarily make it more comfortable, but it does matter because destruction means killing. Driving out, dispossessing actually implies a forced exile. So was this, was this true for all of the Canaanites? Probably not. However, some people were driven out. They were forced into an exile versus killed. And that does matter. And that does give us a fuller picture of what was going on. So let's keep digging. When we talk about towns and cities, what we think about when it says here that they went to, to all these cities and they, and they destroyed them, that's what it says throughout the book of Joshua. When we talk about this, we're thinking about thousands of people, 
maybe even millions of people. You know, we're thinking of Boston or New York or Shanghai uh, or Paris or London. You know, we're, 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 we're thinking of something huge, filled with innocence. But in the ancient Near East, which is the term that's given for the land of Canaan uh, during this time in the surrounding area, uh, in the time of Moses and Joshua, the common size for a city was 100 people. Most people did not live in cities or towns. They lived out in the country because the land was required for farming and for animals, which were required for life. Most people did not live in the areas that were attacked. So if cities were not where people lived, for the most part, then what were they? So Joshua Ryan Butler wrote this book called Skeletons in God's Closet. And he says, the cities Israel takes out are military strongholds, not civilian population centers. So when Israel utterly destroys a city like Jericho, we should picture a military fort being taken over, not a civilian massacre. Cities were what? They were military fortresses. They were palaces for the king. They were centers of business and they were temples for worship. That what was, was what was housed in the cities. That is what was attacked. Not civilian uh, hangout spots or homes for the most part. So in the book of Joshua, we read that Israel conquered cities like Hebron. Uh, in Joshua 10, we're, we're, we're told this and that no Canaanite survived. And yet in Joshua 15, we're told that there are still Canaanite people living in these same cities that were just named five chapters before. What does this mean? Did they miss people? Did they accidentally not kill them and left them alive? No, it means that not everyone was destroyed. Pure and simple. That's what it's telling us. And this is where I'm going with this. God is a God of mercy. And it's shown here. He didn't transform into a gracious and merciful God when Jesus appeared on the earth. He's been that way through the entire time. Uh, and and here's, here's an example of it. In the, at the beginning of the invasion, when they went to the city of Jericho, the first thing they did when they crossed the Jordan River They sent spies ahead, and these spies went in to see what it looked like. And the spies were taken in by a woman named Rahab. They stayed at her place uh, in kind of her, her, the rooms that she rented out. And Rahab protected them. When soldiers came looking for them, she hid them. She let them out uh, through the wall. Uh, She protected them. And in response for her protection, the soldier, the, the Israelite spies told her that, that God would protect her, that they wouldn't uh, kill anyone who lived within her walls, within her house. And so when they, when they went into the city of Jericho, the Israelites, to, to take over, to destroy uh, this city, Joshua first told some of the soldiers, he said, go to the house of Rahab and protect everyone who is within her walls. They're not to be harmed. What a beautiful story of God's protection because mercy was available. But what did it require? It required choosing on Rahab's part. It required choosing God's way over the ways that she had known before. Rahab's household. So what I held back was that Rahab was 
a prostitute. Her household included prostitutes, uh, her family, and who knows what other uh, kind of scandalous characters that lived within it. These weren't the saints of the city. These were normal, broken people just like you and I that were saved. Why? Because they trusted God. Hebrews eleven thirty one. It was by faith that Rahab was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. For she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. All that required was a willingness to trust God and salvation was given. Not only that, but Rahab is even included in the family line of Jesus, the family line of of David and some of the most famous people in Israel. She was the great-grandmother, I believe, of David. What an amazing story of God's mercy in the midst of this time. So let me, let me lay out what the character of God looks like at this point. God is trustworthy. When he makes a promise, he keeps it even generations later. God hates wickedness, and yet he is not hasty in his judgment. He takes time and gives us a chance to change. God is just, though, and he does bring justice when it is demanded. God always offers peace, and peace comes with a a willingness to obey God, to worship God, and God alone. And God is merciful. He forgives unlikely people and brings them into his family. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this sounds like Jesus. I asked early what, what, what changed in the time between the Old Testament God who, who led the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites and the New Testament Jesus who tells us to love our enemies. And, and the answer for me is that God did not change. Our understanding of who God is, though, has grown and developed and flourished over time because God's plan was not completely revealed until Jesus came because Jesus reveals God's plan to us. And he says that more or less in John chapter 3 verses 16 through 21. So you, I'm sure you've heard John 3:16. It's on posters and at football games uh, and quoted in lots of other places. Listen to it. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people who love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for their sins will be for fear their sins will be exposed but those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants Here is God's plan revealed through Jesus uh, in John 3 that no one should die because we have all been offered life through Jesus that's his plan that judgment is not God's hoped-for ending. Salvation is. Uh, that we have a choice, though, of rejecting Jesus' offer. That is a real option. You can choose wickedness. And that choosing wickedness, though, is not what God wants. He wants us to choose his love. Now, the question for us as we start to come to an end here is, were the Canaanites offered 
this sort of an option? And I believe that this is a resounding yes. And here's how. They were offered this sort of an option by people like Abraham living in the midst of them and showing them who God was. Through this, the Canaanites were offered life. I believe that they were offered peace when Israel entered their land. They were given opportunities to change their behavior, opportunities that people like Rahab accepted. And through this, the Canaanites were given another choice other than judgment. I believe that they were given the choice to reject peace to reject God and to choose wickedness. And unfortunately, many did. However, I do deeply believe that that was not God's desire. God did not change. Our understanding of God has has matured. The invasion of Canaan and God's command to destroy are very hard to understand. They are deep things that we have to dig into. But is there an answer? I believe yes, and I believe his name is Jesus because Jesus reveals who God is and what God's plan is. Jesus reveals to us that God's plan is not to destroy the world through violence, but to redeem it through love. And his love will save the world. Brian Zond again, he said, to believe in the sufficiency of God's love to save the world is not naive optimism. It's Christianity. It's what we believe. And so this morning, friends, I want to pray for us because I believe God is offering us a few things here. You know, you can rely on God's unchanging nature. And I want to pray for renewed confidence in his goodness that is consistent at all times. We can believe that God is merciful to all people. And friends, you are offered his mercy. And the question for you is, do you want to accept his mercy today? And God always provides a way to freedom and forgiveness from sin and and wickedness. So would you like to choose his, his freedom and his forgiveness today? I want to invite you right now to pray with me and to allow the truth of who God is to sink in, to accept these gifts from him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the reality that you are the same throughout time. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand that you're the same. But when we dig in, I thank you, we don't have to stretch the truth. We, we can confidently read your word well and realize that you have always been good, that you have always been on the side of justice, that you have always been on the side of the oppressed, that you have always been on the side of love, and that your plan is always love. And so, Jesus, I just pray for my friends right now who have struggled uh, with, with having confidence in your character. I pray that you will renew our confidence in your goodness at all times. At times when we're struggling, at times when our world is going through massively difficult things, that we can have confidence that even in the midst of that, that that's not uh, a sign of you changing that we can rely on the fact that you are good and you are good all the time. Jesus, I pray for those of us who, who crave mercy, who look at our lives and we, we realize that we want mercy, that we want uh, your grace to be given to us. And I pray that you will pour out your mercy on all who long for it. And Jesus, I pray for those of us today who want your freedom and forgiveness 
Jesus, we just come and we admit that we've sinned, that we've acted in ways that are wicked, that are not good, that are opposite of you. And we ask for forgiveness from that. And we say today that we want to worship you and you alone. And we want the freedom that comes in worshiping you and you alone. We love you, Jesus. We are grateful for who you are throughout time and for your realness here with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.